0: Luke, the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying... Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, now we pray for You to settle our hearts that whatever baggage we brought through the door this morning, we would lay those things down and hear what thus saith the Lord through, through the Scriptures, through this parable, through the words of Jesus. Transform our minds and our hearts and that we might be changed by the, the power of the Word, which sanctifies us because the Word is truth and truth changes us. Set us free by the truth and may we be uh, helped Edified, lifted up, encouraged, reproved, rebuked, restored, and conformed into the likeness and image of Jesus through this word. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, the New Testament is filled with admonitions to pray and persevere in prayer, not just to pray, but to persevere in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, and to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Another verse says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray without ceasing. Prayer is portrayed in the New Testament uh, by Jesus and the authors of the New Testament scriptures as a positive spiritual discipline to be engaged in regularly, daily. It's something we're supposed to do, and it's an integral part of the Christian life. We pray for people, for outcomes, for change, for the kingdom to come. We pray for the Holy Spirit. We pray for healing. We pray for our family. We pray for Christ's return. We're commanded to pray. We're expected to pray. But there is another verse, a much older verse, that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this is the flip side to prayer. Christians pray, your kingdom come. And we pray, pray, come Lord Jesus. Yet nothing seems to happen, at least from our limited time perspective. Hope deferred. We pray for the outcome of something. We pray for God to answer. We pray for God to do something. But from our perspective, sometimes nothing happens. Now, many of you have testimonies of times, many times, where God did answer, but there are those times. There are those things in our life, those prayers that seem to go nowhere. I remember in 2003 getting the phone call from my sister-in-law. Maribel's sister married my brother about 10 years after her and I were together, Maribel and I. And they had been married about a year, year and a half And my brother had never been married, neither had her sister. And they had a baby, my nephew Micah, and he was about 10 months old. And Anna, Maribel's sister, my brother's wife, was at our house. They were making Puerto Rican soup. Maribel's Puerto Rican. They were making Puerto Rican soup until about noon. And Anna got home and uh, called us screaming. My brother was motionless on the bed, not breathing. And um, the paramedics had just showed up, and I could hear them saying he's gone and I raced up they lived about a city away from us about 30 minutes and I raced up there and I held all of my emotions in suspense but in my heart I felt it and I got there and my brother was not moving he wasn't breathing they rushed him to the hospital and and they took him into the emergency room and put a curtain around the gurney and he was laying there with one of those tubes down his mouth and it was me and my father and one of the elders from our church and my brother was dead And one of the elders from the church was praying for my brother to come back to life. Uh, But I knew that prayer wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't that God didn't hear it. God heard it, but my brother's time had come. He was gone. And so sometimes certain prayers that don't get answered stagnate us in our faith. They can. They can threaten to do that. They can threaten to to rob us of our confidence we have with God, where, where our idea of a personal, warm, loving God who hears and answers us and who's with us in every trial can threaten to be reshaped into an idea of God as kind of a cold, impersonal deity that leaves us in this world to fend for ourselves. That's what unanswered prayers sometimes can do. It can lie to us and tell us that we're really on our own, that there's nobody on the other end listening, that there's no one with any power to do anything. When our hope is, is deferred, it makes our hearts sick. I don't know if there are any disheartened folks in the building this morning, any weary people today whose hope has been deferred, but Jesus has a word for you. And Luke writes in verse 1 that Jesus gives this parable to the effect that people ought always to pray, believers, certainly the disciples. We ought always to pray and not lose heart because Jesus knows that tension between hopeful expectation and delay that defers hope and makes the heart sick. So he gives this parable. This parable is, is given by Jesus because he's not ignorant of the challenge of prayer. Jesus was always praying and did not have all of his prayers answered either. We remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. But it wasn't possible. Some things aren't. God has a greater plan and a greater will, but yet still invites us to come to him in prayer as a loving father wants to hear the requests of his children. My children come to me. They don't have to beg and plead and grovel and get down on all fours like I'm a stranger who really has, you know, all the good things are, you know, clenched tightly in my fist. I don't want to give it. My children don't come to me that way. When they need something, they speak to me openly because they know their father loves them. And Jesus commands us to come to God like a loving father and make our requests known. Jesus also knows the difficulty that we have, and so he gives us this parable. Verse 2, there was a certain judge in a city who neither feared God nor showed regard for people certain judge who doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people, a corrupt judge, a magistrate, someone who's in power, who has the the power to grant people justice, ostensibly in a courtroom, who is not guided by any feelings of the law being sacred or people being sacred. He's just out for himself. In Scripture, a righteous judge judges on the Lord's behalf. Chronicles 19 and 6, his judgments, it says, are to guard against the perversion of justice, the biblical idea of what a judge should be. He shows no partiality. He doesn't take bribes. He fears the Lord. This fellow in Jesus' parable is quintessentially the opposite of that. He's corrupt. He's not out for justice. He's out for himself. His rulings from the bench are up to the highest bidder. He's selfish, without compassion, self-centered, self-absorbed, the opposite of God's vision of justice. You wouldn't want to appear before this judge or make an appeal to him. He's a crook, but he has the power to do what's right. Jesus is giving us an illustration. This is, this is not a real person, but it's, it's, it's for the purpose of the parable. Parable. And someone without any ability to appeal to his sense of aggrandizement, self-aggrandizement, comes to him a widow of all people. Now, a widow is somebody with none of the necessary resources to procure favor of a judge, let alone a corrupt judge. So there's this contrast here of someone who has lots and lots of power. Very few people besides very powerful leaders in our country have more power in in the local community than a judge. A judge has a lot of power. And in contrast, a person who probably has no relative power, in comparison, is a widow. A widow is defenseless. She's vulnerable. And in the ancient world, widows were often dirt poor. They had the, 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 the voice, the status of a bag lady, I don't see a lot of bag ladies here in West County, but I grew up in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, and they were all over the place. And sometimes they would talk to themselves, and they didn't have a lot of status in society. If they shouted on the street corner, nobody paid attention. And so what Jesus is trying to do is give us a contrast of someone who has a lot of power but doesn't care about God, uses his power for their own selfish purposes, and someone who has absolutely no power, and these two contrasts are here in this parable, the judge and the widow. And she cries out in verse 3, Give me justice against my adversary. In all circumstances, she has zero chance, but it says that she kept coming to him. She kept coming to him. And this touches on certain Jewish ancient sensibilities because Widows are one of a special category of people who, along with orphans and foreigners, were under the special protection of God. Philo of Alexandria, listen to this, he's a first century Jewish writer, he says that God provides for the orphans and widows because they've lost their protectors, in the first case parents, and in the second, husbands, and in this desolation, no refuge remains that men can give. And therefore, they are not denied the hope that is the greatest of all, the hope in God, who in the graciousness of his nature does not refuse the task of caring for and watching over them in their desolate condition. Widows were powerless because, one, they were women. Things have changed a lot in our world, and they're still changing. But in the ancient world, women were relatively powerless without a male protector, Widows were poor because they were often without income and they were vulnerable without the protection of their husbands, which made it easy for people to ignore them. As I said a minute ago, they had the status of a bag lady often. Have you ever felt ignored by God? That if God is listening, He's not doing anything about it? That God was silent? You know, that may be the hardest part of prayer is we pray to a God who at least in the moment does not talk back to us audibly. Now, those of us who have really good theology, we know that God speaks through nature. God speaks through Scripture. But in the moment of prayer, God does not seem to respond in the way that we would want Him to, especially when there's a trial especially when we're suffering or going through tribulations, God can often seem silent. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel that God has been silent. I've wrestled with this myself over the past year or so, as I've struggled with my own suffering, my own uh, tr- attempt to understand the suffering of others. And I've mentioned this before, but you know, the cancer diagnosis had me thinking about Where was God? Where is God? And as I prayed and cried out to Him, I often didn't hear anything back. And sometimes you don't feel anything back. But God, in His wisdom, allows us to wrestle through those feelings of aloneness. And in that process, our faith somehow becomes stronger. Now, certainly the silence of God can weaken faith. It can do that. And that's when suffering moves to evil. Not all suffering is evil, but sometimes suffering can become evil if it causes us to doubt and lose our faith. But it seems for the most part that God allows us to wrestle with that silence, and our faith regroups. Our faith has to reinvent itself, not because we're convincing ourselves that there's a God there when there really isn't, but something happens in our faith where we're able to latch on to other things in our relationship with God. And this is why faith is so incredibly valuable in the sight of God. I've reflected recently, why is faith so important? What is it about faith that justifies? Why is it like a certain action that justifies? What is it about faith? Why has God made faith the fulcrum point on which our relationship with him you know, swivels or moves? What is it about faith? Faith justifies because it's so darn hard sometimes. Faith is hard. Faith can be really hard. It can be hard to believe God when you feel ignored. It can be hard to believe God when you feel abandoned. It can be hard to believe in God when He's silent. And Sometimes it appears He is silent. But that doesn't mean God isn't listening, and it doesn't mean God doesn't care, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't answer. And it doesn't mean God does not speak to us, but he often doesn't speak to us in the ways that we would hope. When hope is deferred, it threatens to transform one's personal triune theism, this idea that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, personally relates to us in a warm and loving relationship. And when hope is deferred, it threatens that threatens to transform that idea idea of God into a cold deism. Now, who's heard of these two words, theism and deism? Who knows what that is? Theism is the idea that God relates to human beings personally. It's really the biblical concept of God. Now, Muslims and other faiths have an idea of theism also, a personal, personal God. But deism, which is the faith of many of our founding fathers, was this idea that there is someone out there and he made he, he kind of got the universe started, but he's just kind of been like, you know, he's backed away saying, figure it out. You're on your own. You know what to do. Figure it out. It's this impersonal idea of God. God does not personally relate to us. God is certainly not listening to our prayers, let alone answering any of them. The world is the way it is. Make use of it because there ain't no help coming from me. That's the cold, impersonal deism. That is not biblical Christianity. That is certainly not the idea of God from Scripture. Many have this idea. In some ways, it has helped many people. They've pulled themselves ostensibly up by their own bootstraps because they feel like there's no help coming from God. I'm just going to do my own thing. And many people have been successful and you know um, made avenues for themselves in this world and, and done things. But as believers... That is the antithesis of certainly the idea of God we have from Scripture. The God of Scripture is personal. He loves us. He thinks about us. The God from Scripture hears prayer, answers prayer, and cares about the innermost details of our hearts and our lives. The God from Scripture is warm. He loves us. He feels love for us. Not a cold, distant, impersonal connection or lack of connection. We would call this the imminence of God. God is transcendent. He exists out there beyond space and time in eternity. And at the same time, he's imminent. He's with us, present with us, present in this world. Now, this widow, as I mentioned before, has this status that is not an important status. And we're not told the injustice she suffered, but her gender and her powerlessness make any venture into the male realm of public courts forbidding, right? The only weapon she has is persistence. Now, in ancient Middle Eastern courts, It wasn't like it is today where there's a list of cases on the docket and the judge calls up the next person. Often what happened in the ancient Middle Eastern world is the judge sat on his seat and crowds would come forward in sort of a chaotic gathering and whoever shouted the loudest for their case to be heard and muscled their way to the front got heard. I had a friend go to China on business um, a a while back and he said he went somewhere and stood in line And he said, everyone just cut in front of them. And, you know, in America, we wait in line, we pull up to a red light, we wait, even though there's no cars, we don't pull into the intersection. Like, we've got all these rules that, you know, that kind of guide us and lead us. He said, but in China, you know, if you go up to go buy food at a vendor, you just muscle your way to the front, at least in the city he was in. And in the ancient court system, it was like that too. You just muscled your way up, and you were heard not on account of whatever order your case was in, but on how shrill your cry for justice was. And so she comes persistently pleading with this shrill voice, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice over and over and over again. It says in verse 4, for a time, he was unwilling to act, but afterward he says to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, This widow keeps bothering me. I'll give her justice so that she won't beat me down by her continual coming. Despite his lack of humanity, he decides to act on her behalf because she's wearing him out. She won't take no for an answer. This shrill voice crying from the edge of the crowd, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. Avenge me. Avenge me. Give me justice. And after a while, he says, okay. He can't take it anymore. Now, right now, some of you are probably thinking, okay, so I got it now. So the key to unlocking prayers is to realize that God's really busy, but if we pester him long enough, we'll get what we want. Just like this widow, if we keep bugging him will we'll somehow wear God down until he can't take it anymore and he'll release his tightly clenched fist? No. Actually, please don't think of God this way. The point actually is that God is not like the unrighteous judge and we're not like the poor widow. Jesus says, Listen to what the unjust just judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Not a widow, not someone who's powerless with no connections, but will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off like this unrighteous judge? No, I tell you. He will see that they get justice quickly. The parable is not an allegory. It's a study in opposites. All right? It's not an allegory, well, the judge is God and we're the widow. Wrong. In fact, some parables function that way. This parable doesn't. This is actually a study in opposites. God will not, will, excuse me, will not God Unlike the unjust judge, bring justice for his elect who cry to him, though he patiently waits to act for them. In other words, Jesus is saying, people, you're not like this widow. In fact, you're totally opposite from this powerless widow. The widow was poor, powerless, forgotten, abandoned, and had no real relationship with the judge. She's just a face. She's just a number. She's just a problem. And Jesus is saying, you are totally unlike that widow. You're God's heirs. He uses the word elect. Chosen ones. That's just one of the many metaphors for the children of God. We're heirs. We're elect. We're chosen one. We're beloved. We're the people of God. We're his treasured possession. All of these beautiful Words which richly communicate the relationship we have to God, which is not one where our voice is meaningless, where we're badgering God, God is too busy for us, but says, okay, okay, okay. That is not the God we have in Scripture, certainly not the God of this parable. Jesus is saying, you're not abandoned, you're adopted. It's not hopeless for you. I don't forget about you. You're a priority because you're related to me. This is what God is saying through this parable. You're related to me because you're God's sons and daughters. Verse 7, won't he give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In other words, will not God ultimately make all things right for his chosen and elect beloved children? Unlike this judge who gives in because he's being pestered to death? And so if you're here today, this morning, and your hope has been deferred, God has not forgotten you. He will come through. Or you may be someone who sees prayer as a waste of time. Frankly, I have actually talked to people, Christians who don't pray. They just don't pray. It's just a waste of time. I've even heard stories of pastors who don't pray. They prepared their sermons, they were very good administrators, they had great plans and programs, but they didn't pray. Their ministries got very large, very successful, and then one day there was a fall. You hear about it all the time. I've recently read stories about outwardly seemingly very successful pastors who admitted after some appropriate relationship or something that destroyed their ministry, they confessed later, I never prayed. Things were going just fine. I was just working, you know, working things the way they needed to be done. I was, I was, you know, preparing my sermons. I was preaching. Everything seemed fine. The church was growing, but I never prayed. Confessed later on. I just, I want you to know, just since we're talking about that, that I take time out of my schedule. Actually, it's a part of my job, and I pray for every single person in this church. Not just the families. I pray for every single person in this church. It takes me a long time, and I'm so privileged to do it. I'm so privileged to war against Satan on your behalf. If there's one thing I know I'm doing right as a pastor, and I'm not making myself the hero of the story, I'm simply saying I've come to recognize that if there's anything that I do that's, that I should be doing, it's praying for the flock. You are God's precious flock, and he loves you. And sometimes you're too busy to pray for yourself. I want you to know someone is praying for you. When you're at work, when you're at home, when you're running your errands, there's someone on their knees praying, crying out into the air for you on your behalf. Jesus told Peter, he knew Peter, and he said, Peter, Satan desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith Fail you not. What an image, right? Sift you as wheat. You've seen the sifters, you know? You put the wheat in the sifter and it comes down real fine. You know, it's how flour is made, I think. I'm not really sure. But Satan wants to do that to us, right? He wants to sift us. He wants to disintegrate us into fine little particles. But God holds our faith together through your Prayers. Maybe you're someone who sees prayer as a waste of time. I just want to say you're wrong. It's not a waste of time. It may be the most important thing in your life you're not doing. It may be the most important thing in your life you're not doing. And if you do pray, but your prayers are hurried, I just want to say this just as a way of encouragement. Slow down. Slow down. Find some time if you can. Look, I get the prayer on the way to work. Oh, Father, thank you for this day. You know what I mean? Right? I get it, totally. And God hears those prayers. But nothing can replace the hidden place of quiet solitude where you have pushed pause on your schedule and have made time for God. So I just want to encourage you today to cultivate if you do not have an unhurried prayer life, Does God hear all of our prayers, you know, when we're rushing to work or rushing home? Of course. But something special happens in that place of communion with God where you don't have to be anywhere, where you've cleared your schedule out because you're there to just commune with God and talk to God and pour out your heart. The hidden solitude of prayer where God wants to hear every grievance and God wants to give you space to agonize. There's something about life that God allows us to experience that he wants us to wrestle with life. He does. He wants us to wrestle, often in agony, over life. And I know every one of us, we want that smooth sailing experience. We do. And anything that interrupts that seems like an intrusion. Has God forgotten me? But in actuality, it's God often orchestrating the bumps in the road, the potholes, the discouragement, sometimes the depression, the tension in a marriage. God allows those things because it's in the process of those things that we truly encounter the face of the Almighty. And He wants to meet us in prayer. The private secret chamber where God communes and talks with us and we talk with Him. Don't ever decide not to pray because you think you're like the penniless, powerless, nameless, faceless, forgotten widow. That is not who you are. Don't lose heart. God is faithful. Now the end of the parable shifts from the faithfulness of God to ours. The question is not whether God will respond to our prayers, but whether we'll respond to God and trust His faithfulness to fulfill all of His promises. Verse 8, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? The focus shifts from the faithfulness of God to hear our prayers to our faithfulness to trust that He hears and will fulfill His promises. Jesus recognizes the, the tension, the discouragement, and then pushes it back on us. Encourages, admonishes us, and commands us Will you still believe? Even though sometimes hope is delayed. We hate delay, don't we? In our on demand culture, right? You can get almost anything now on demand. I went to Sheridan's last night. My son is in town, it was hot. And I got there, and I had to wait in a long line. Of course, it's really hot. Of course, you know, the, the custard place is going to be packed. And I was just, oh. you know. I mean, it took about 11 minutes to get to the front of the line, but it was just, that's just not how we live in our culture anymore. Everything is boom, 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 boom. And so when God delays, it can really get us down. None of us like it. But it doesn't mean God isn't faithful He's faithful. He loves you. And he wants to know, do you still believe? David Garland says prayer feeds faith. Prayer feeds faith. It lifts up drooping hands and it strengthens weak knees. It's not so much only what, what prayer is doing to get God's attention. That happens. But it's also what prayer does for us. We're strengthened in it. I just want to summarize in closing... To reiterate to you God's attitude towards your prayers, I think it will encourage you to talk to God more. God is interested in your prayers because he's interested in you. God hears your prayers and wants to hear your prayers and wants you to bring your heartaches, your joys, your praises, your pains before him in prayer because he cares for you. He loves you. You don't have to grovel or pester to get his attention. You just have to talk to him. Because he's a loving father and he cares. And he won't make us wait eternally or forever, but he will answer because he's faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you hear us. And that you bring justice when we've been wronged. You are accomplishing good on our behalf and for your glory at all times, even behind the scenes in ways that we don't perceive it. Maybe the hardest thing about prayer is that when you answer, sometimes we're not able to recognize an answer. When your will is done, sometimes we're not able to recognize that it's your perfect will. Give us eyes to see When you are at work and moving in our lives, help us to recognize and see past what appears sometimes to be randomness and chance to be the inner working of the Spirit in our lives and hearts. And may we rejoice when we behold it. May we see it with the eyes of faith and recognize that you hear us, that you answer, that you don't leave us waiting forever. But that you care because we're your children. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.